I am so glad that you are all here and you are on time. Our bus tour, we're starting up right now. It's time for our bus tour through the city of Ephesus. There's one problem. The bus is broken down. So we have to walk through the city of Ephesus. So everyone, come on, get walking with me. Let me see those arms swinging. Come on, I want you walking. We're walking. We're walking. We're walking through the city of Ephesus. Yes, keep walking. It's a long walk. Here we go. Now, my name is Tor Guide. My friends call me Tor. And we are walking towards Ephesus. And as we get closer, I want you to keep your eyes open. You will want to close your eyes because you will not want to see what we have to see in Ephesus. So as we get, oh, don't walk any further. Everybody stop. We are at the edge of the district around the Temple of Diana. Artemis to the Greeks, Diana to the Romans. Any area from a bow shot from the temple out, you can commit any crime you want, and you cannot be arrested. So you see that man over there carrying that pile of gold, which I don't believe is his, and he is traveling in towards Ephesus? You just watch now. There it goes. He crossed the line and the guard chasing him had to stop. He is safe. The area around the temple was a haven for criminals. Can you imagine what it was like living in a place where everybody could do anything they wanted, any way they wanted, to anybody they wanted? and they could not be punished. Now, on top of that, that temple of Diana, who is the goddess of fertility, the temple made its money by selling women. They sold women into slavery. They offered women for the pleasure of men. And in that temple, Things went on that you would not even want to think about. I understand on Tuesdays, you can get two women for the price of one. It is a horrid place. It's a place of orgies and a place of sacrificing women to the gods. It is a horrid place. Now, we're going to walk through Ephesus, but because this district is so horrible, we have constructed a glass archway for you to walk through. So everybody in single line, and we're walking through this glass archway. Excuse me, sir, would you take your hands off the glass? I have to clean that glass every day. Keep your hands down. So as we're walking through Ephesus, look to your left and look to your right. And in this district, all you see is horrible things happening. There are people mauling other people. There's open sex on the streets. It's a wretched place to be. And as we walk just a little further, you can look over here. There's the 250,000 seat amphitheater. And in that amphitheater, they used to pit man against beast. 
and they used to cry out for blood. It was bloodthirsty country. All they wanted to do was live for their own pleasures. I don't know about you, but Ephesus is not on the list of cities that I want to live in. So I want you to turn around. We're going to walk back through the glass arch. And the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Like that? Okay. Here we go. Through the glass arch, we're leaving Ephesus. The Ephesus that I just described is the Ephesus that existed when Paul was there. He went there two times, and once he was there for two years. And Paul had friends in Ephesus. He had people that he knew. People that he had seen walk from the darkness into light. People that he loved and cherished. And now he's in a jail, a Roman jail, and he's writing to the people of Ephesus. Paul knows what it's like to have his life changed. Paul was Saul. Paul persecuted Christians. Paul stood there and held Stephen's coat while they stoned him to death. Paul was just as bloodthirsty as those Ephesians. He knew what it meant to have his life changed by Jesus. And in chapter 2, he says, Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. But Paul's talking to them. And, and you watch these people in Ephesus, and they're moving, and they're talking, and they're thinking, and they're planning, and they're living. So how could they be dead? You know, how, how could they be dead? I have seen dead people, and they're dead. You can kick them. You can do whatever you want. They're not going to do anything. They're dead. I remember when I was a young teenager, I went to a funeral of a saint from our church. And people had prayed and prayed for this woman to live and to not die. And I'm a very visual person, was then, I still am. And I sat at that funeral, and I stared at that corpse, and I swore I saw her chest move. And I said, oh, this is it, God. This is what we need. We need a revival. We need miracles. This is it. You're going to raise her from the dead, scare the pants off that preacher up there. And it's going to be a miracle. I waited through the whole funeral. She didn't move. She was dead. When I first got out of high school, I worked um, at Westinghouse Sales in Hartford, Connecticut. And one of the salesmen was a mortician by trade and a salesman to pay his bills. Jerry told me <laughs> the first time he walked into the room full of dead bodies, mortician was leading him through to start his training and just as he passed this body the arm fell off the table and the body went <sighs> well Jerry didn't ask any questions he was outside within two seconds and he's out there and he is gasping in fright I mean he just it scared him tremendously I mean it would scare me the mortician came out, and he was laughing so hard he couldn't even speak to Jerry. <laughs> and he said, Jerry, the gases build up in the body. That happens. The man is dead. There's a finality to death. 
I'm sorry. This morning I'm having a hard time because the message I want to share with you is so heavy on my heart. So heavy on my heart, and I don't want to mess it up. There's a finality to death. There's no hope. If you were to look at the people in Ephesus, if you were to see the darkness, the perverseness, the sin that they lived in, you would think there's no hope for them. There's no way they can walk out of there. And these are the type of people that Paul is speaking to. It says in verse 2, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world. Now the world is still living in sin around them, obeying the devil. When you live in sin, you're obeying the devil. There's only two sides, God's side and Satan's side. And when you're living in sin, even though you think you're doing just what you want to, the way you want to do it, Satan is having a party. He is delighted that you have turned away from God. He is thrilled that you are disobeying God. Because Satan is the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. Some people will say, I've made a choice. My choice, I have a friend that I have testified to for 15 years. And she still says to me, God works for you, I don't need him. What she doesn't understand is she's making a choice to serve Satan when she makes that choice. Because he is the one that rules in the heart of those who refuse to obey him. Then Paul says, all of us used to live that way. Every single person walked in sin, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's wrath, just like everyone else. If you have ever read any stories in the Old Testament, when God gets mad, he's mad. He'll wipe out an entire nation. He'll, he'll, he'll destroy those that refuse to obey him and turn against him. I don't want that kind of wrath on me. But if you're refusing to obey God and you're letting Satan rule your life, you are living under God's wrath. You could be the richest man. You could think you have it all. You're on your sixth wife. Things are going well. You got everything you want. But you're under the wrath of God. These are the people that Paul's talking to. Remember, as Pastor Doug has told us in the past, the Ephesians weren't Jews, they were Gentiles. And they weren't church people who all of a sudden got it. They were deep pagans. Deep pagans. And he's saying, this is what you were. You're filthy, worthless scum. And again, that sounds very hopeless. We find that there's no chance for change. Then look at verse 4. But God. Two little words. 
so important. Paul is saying, this is where you were. This is who you were. This is how you lived. You were hopeless, lost, dead. But God. Just those two little words. God is rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sin, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. You're dead in your sins. God sent his only son, Jesus, to die for you. Now, when Christ was dead, he was dead. He wasn't responding to anything. He, he was gone. I remember a few good Fridays ago, um, Pastor Doug and I were doing this little thing up here, and I kept saying, my son is dead, my son is dead. And I was all upset. I was Mary. And my grandson said, what is her problem? She comes back to life. <laughs> and I said it again, and he said, again with the dead thing. <laughs> we know that Jesus did not say, stay dead. God called him forth. And when he called Jesus forth, and brought Jesus back to life, he gave you the opportunity to come from death to life. That is so exciting. That is so exciting to know that he kicked death right in the teeth and said, you have no more authority here. Jesus came back to life so that you could have life here and life in eternity. And it's only by God's grace that you have been saved. You cannot earn it. You cannot throw away enough habits. You cannot be a good enough person. You cannot earn points using a stop and shop card to get gas cheaper. There is no way that you can earn your salvation because it's free. It cost Jesus his life. And then when he came back to, to life, he says, freely, I give you salvation. Today, Christ wants every single person to come to him, to acknowledge that he's the son of God, to acknowledge that he died for them, that he rose again, and he's just waiting, waiting, to welcome you into his arms. There is nothing better than that. Nothing better than that. And if today you have never acknowledged Christ, don't wait. You know, if somebody offers me an ice cream, I'm going to get it now. I love ice cream. And I'm not going to say, oh, maybe next week. I'm going to say, let's do it today. Let's go today and get it done. He raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated with us in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. I am no longer that filthy scum. I am no longer the lost, unsaved person. I'm a child of the king. I'm a princess in the heavenly realms. And God is saying to me, you know what, when I look at you, I see Jesus. When I love you, I love you just like I love Jesus. Because you're united with Christ. 
You are here in the heavenly realms as a loved, chosen, forgiven child of God. And God did that so that he could point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us, as shown in all he has done for us who are united in Christ. God wants you to be a reflection of who he is, what he's done, and what he's going to do. Satan is death. God is life. It's as easy as that. I hold up a red crayon, it's red. I can't make it blue, I can't make it green, I can't do anything, it's red. And the truth is as simple as that. Satan is death, and God is life. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift of God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. Those words, but God, weren't just for the Ephesians. You could look back at your life and you could say, or maybe where you're at today. I was, but God. I used to, but God. I still, and then we would all say, but God. God can make the difference. There is nothing, there is nothing that God won't forgive. There is no one that God doesn't love. There is nothing so horrible in your past that God doesn't want to redeem you through it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. There are people that travel the world collecting art. I get bored at the Wadsworth Museum. I'll be absolutely honest with you. People stand and they look at these pictures and they, they're there for an hour. I go, yeah, that's not bad. And I walk on. I'm not an art appreciator. But there are people who are, and they'll travel the world and, and say that they found the masterpiece, the very last picture that Fred Schmolzenbach ever painted. And everybody in the world wants this painting. It goes up for auction, and they're bidding, and they're bidding, and they're bidding, and this man spends millions of dollars for Fred Schmolzenbach's masterpiece. And then he takes it home. Does he put it in his basement, in the crate? No. He takes it home and he hangs it right on the wall where the moment you walk into his house, you see that painting. It's his. He's proud of it. You are God's masterpiece. God is proud of you. God wants you. He wants to display you to the world. He wants to say, look, what has happened? See what's happened in this person's life, and guess what? It can happen in your life, too. Now, if Fred Schmolzenbach's masterpiece was in pieces, kind of like a jigsaw puzzle, the owner would look at it and go, that's not worth a thing. Put it in the trash bag and throw it away. 
when your life is in pieces, when you have not allowed Jesus to come into your life and put it all together, you're like that broken masterpiece. But God says to you this morning, I can put it all together. And when I finish, there's no missing pieces. There's no pieces that don't quite fit. When God finishes with you, you are the masterpiece. There is nothing. And each one of you is a unique masterpiece. There's no other one like you. Because sometimes we look around and we say, man, if I could just be like that person. If I could just have their joy, if I could just have their strength, if I could just whatever. That's not what God asks you to do. God's masterpieces can be the classics. It could be some of that stuff where it looks like they took the paint and threw it from across the room on the canvas. It can be anything. God has chosen a masterpiece to make you into so that you can do the good things he planned for you so long ago. When I was a teenager, about the age of these young people over here, all I heard about in church was, you got to find God's plan for your life. you got to know what God wants you to do. you got to find God's plan for your life. Well, I was the type of teenager that when you told me that, I shut down. That's too overwhelming for me. It's too much. I, I can't handle the pressure of trying to find what God wants me to do. You know, I have a hard enough time remembering to do my note cards for my English thesis. I, I can't possibly know what God wants me to do. And then when I was... One night in Norwalk, Connecticut, we were at a church, and we watched a film. And last night I called it a movie, and I had to change that because they didn't show movies in the church. They showed films in the church. So we watched this film called Face the Music. I don't remember much about that movie, except I remember that the young man was rebellious he was against God, and but God changed his life. And I remember being spellbound by a film that probably, if I watched it today, I'd call it hokey. But I watched it that night, and I heard God speak to me. He put his hand on me, and he said, I'm putting you aside for ministry. This is what I want from you. I cried all the way home that night. I couldn't figure out, number one, why God would call me. And then as I began to share with others, I was told, oh, you know, women in the church, they can be pastor's wives or missionaries. Those are your two choices. If you're going into ministry, you're a pastor's wife or a missionary. I was scared to death I'd be sent to Africa. I don't know why, but Africa was like that country that just hung over my head like a dark cloud. 
So missionary was out. Didn't know where I'd meet a pastor, so being a pastor's wife was out. And as I continued to talk to people, because I was a very impressionable young woman who was more into what people said than what God said in his word, I turned away. I said, God, you could not possibly have spoken to me. You could not possibly be calling me into ministry because I'm not worthy. I'm a girl. have no money. My parents have no status. There is no way that you could be calling me into ministry. So I turned and I walked away. Did it cost me? You bet it cost me. It cost me a lot of pain. It cost me a lot of wrong decisions. It cost me years and years and years of doubting who God was in my life. I believed that lie, and it was a lie, for many, many, many years. And because I was so caught up in what could have been, what should have been, what God could have done with me, I was stuck in that district outside Ephesus. I was hopeless. I was lost. I couldn't get out because I had convinced myself that God could never use me now because I didn't listen the first time. And therefore, I was done. And then, <laughs> but God began to speak to my heart. And he began to help me to start to see where he's using me in different ways, in different places than I had ever imagined. That there were people that I was meeting that were ministering to me as I ministered to them. That there were things that God had called me to that I would never have called ministry, but they were. And I had to say, but God, I was so dead. I was so disobedient. I was so wrong. And I am so sorry. And you know what God said? I love you. I still want you to be mine. I still want to use you. In your brokenness, in your failure, in the many times you've disappointed me, I still love you. I still want you. That's the God that we serve. That's the God that Paul is writing to the Ephesians about, and he's encouraging them to remember that, yes, once you were dead in sin, but now, through God, through the blood of Jesus, you are alive in Christ. What an awesome, awesome fact that is. So there are two things I'd like to leave you with this morning, and one is, if you have never cried out to Jesus, if you have never said, Jesus, I know that you're the Son of God. I know that you died for me. I know that you love me. I know that you want to cleanse me of my sins. I know that you want to, to walk with me. Don't wait. Because every time you wait, you miss another day of joy, another day of freedom, another day of life. And Jesus will continue to call upon your heart. He will continue, the Holy Spirit will continue to keep knocking on those walls that you've built up until the day you yield. So if you know you're going to yield, 
why wait? And the second choice is, if you think that you've missed what God had for you, if you think that, you know, you're living here and you're doing this and it's not what God planned for you, I had a pastor, I said to him once, I'm done. God can't use me because I'm not where I should have been. And he said to me, <laughs> he said, you mean if you were living in Kansas in the middle of a cornfield, God's not there? And I said, no. Well, then what are you saying? That God's not powerful enough to take your broken pieces and make them back into the masterpiece he planned? Are you saying that God cannot redeem you and use you because of your failures? So if today you're thinking, I don't know what your plan is, God. It's not what I first thought it was because I messed that one up. Don't think that way. That's a lie from Satan himself. Because he has a party. Every time you say, yeah, I think God would have me do this, but oh no, I'm not worthy. I'm too tired. I'm too old. I'm too fat. I'm too tall. I'm too short. Whatever your excuse is. That's from Satan. God looks at you this morning. He said, you are my masterpiece. I love you. I want to glorify myself in you and through you. Don't let tradition, don't let other people, don't let anything stop you from becoming what you can become through Christ. Lord, I pray this morning this morning that every single person in this room would hear you speak to them right where they're at. I pray, Lord, for those that don't know you, that they would understand that even if they don't fully comprehend what it means, that they take that first step this morning, that they'd reach out their hand and they say, Jesus, I need you. And I pray this morning that for those of us who need to just realize how much you love us, and that no matter where we're at, you can still use us, that they will call upon your name and say, show me. Show me your greatness and your glory. There's nothing greater than to serve the living God. Thank you, Jesus.